life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we try to separate sense from nonsense for you and try to demystify science. Uh, my background is in chemistry, and I think that that is the central science that ties all the others together. It is the thread that links everything, because if you have an understanding of what molecules are all about, what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good understanding of what can and cannot happen in the world. Well, we got to start with meat today, because as you know, there's been a lot of controversy this past week. And uh, if, if you've been hiding under a rock, that's the only way that you could have missed the discussion of the papers that were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that call into question the advice about eating meat. And these authors suggest that we should keep on eating meat and processed meats the same way as we have been doing, that there's no reason to alter habits. Well, sometimes science is white or black. The earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. Ultraviolet light is of shorter wavelength than visible light. Atoms are smaller than molecules. Every minute that we live brings us one minute closer to death. Well, talking about that, uh, we try to put off death to the very last moment, and hopefully we can do it with proper nutrition. But when it comes to questions about nutrition, instead of white or black, we are looking at shades of gray. Like when we wonder about the wisdom of eating meat. Some people believe that it is not right to raise animals for the sole purpose of eating them. Others see nothing at all wrong with that practice. This is a question of ethics and personal beliefs and cannot be settled with science. Then there are environmental issues. Here science does indicate that animal agriculture is not an environmentally friendly business. It requires lots of water and land to grow the crops needed to feed animals, uh, calculations show that for every kilogram of beef, uh, you need seven kilograms of feed. There's no question that a plant-based diet has a smaller environmental footprint. The greatest controversy, however, arises when it comes to the effects of meat consumption on health. There's obviously no yes or no answer to this question for several reasons. Eating a six-ounce steak is not the same as eating a 12-ounce steak. Nor is it the same as eating six ounces of ham that's preserved with nitrites. Neither is it the same as eating six ounces of poultry. Eating meat seven times a week is not the same as eating it four times. Eating that steak with french fries is not the same as eating it with a salad. Replacing meat with vegetables is not the same as replacing it with pasta. Barbecuing meat is not the same as stewing it. Grass-fed beef is not the same as grain-fed. Meat consumption by a young athlete is not the same as by an older person with diabetes. And you have to eat a lot of beans to get the same amount of protein as is found in a small serving of meat. Over the years, there have been numerous studies that have tried to evaluate the risk-benefit ratio of eating meat. Most of these have been observational studies based on questionnaires. And there are a lot of confounding features here. People's memory can be faulty. They may have trouble quantifying amounts and may report what they think they should have eaten instead of what they actually ate. Although each study can be nitpicked, when all the studies are put together, the evidence is that cutting back on meat consumption is beneficial to health. 
or at least that has been the conclusion until the recent papers that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine alleging that the evidence for cutting back on meat and processed meat is so weak that people may just as well enjoy themselves and consume meat just the way they have been doing. As one would expect, this recommendation opened up a can of worms. And incidentally, worms are a good source of protein and are low in fat, so could be an appropriate substitute for meat. Bon appétit. Weak evidence, however, is not the same as no evidence. For example, the authors of the recent papers conclude that eliminating three meat meals a week can result in health benefits for only about four out of every thousand people over a 10-year period. Indeed, this doesn't seem like a huge benefit, because if we calculate, only one in every 250 people would benefit. But if we have, let's say, a 100 million people in North America who would cut back on meat consumption in this fashion, then 400,000 people would reap benefits. And that is hardly trivial. Add to this the benefit for the environment and the recommendation of the authors of the Annals paper that there's no need to change meat consumption habits hardly seems appropriate, especially for people who eat meat at virtually every meal. As Aristotle famously said, there are often extreme views on issues, but it is best to search for an answer somewhere in between the extremes. This is often difficult to do, because researchers are often wedded to the views upon which they have forged careers and are very adept at referring selectively to the literature to back up their arguments. Often there may be alliances with vested interests that are not readily apparent. The problem of what to eat and what not to eat is far too complex to have a simple solution. You know what? I like my eggplant and green pepper sandwiches, my stir-fry, and my vegetable goulash. But I also enjoy the occasional burger, even a hot dog, as long as there's a good hockey game or a baseball game in front of it. Uh, I've uh, voiced this opinion uh, before. I've even, you know, I, I talked about this business on my Facebook page. And uh, I got a rather interesting uh, comment. And uh, I thought I would share that with you because, as I said, there's always more to a story. There's always another side. So a correspondent sent me this. It takes less water to grow a cow than to grow an almond tree. It takes less water to produce a cow than a kilo of chocolate. It takes less water to produce a cow than a vineyard of grapes. 85% of the land used for grazing ruminants cannot be used to grow crops. It is either too wet, too stony, too high, too steep, too poor, too dry, too cold, too hot, or one of a million other things that prevents anything other than grass and native flora to grow. Crops don't grow on most of Alaska or Siberia, but cows will. While we're on the subject of appropriate land use, is it okay to have two million acres of land used just for parking spaces in the U.S.? Is it okay to have millions of acres dedicated to growing grapes for wine, cocoa, uh, for chocolate, or sugarcane, for example? Humans can survive pretty well without wine, chocolate, or processed sugar. So if land use is based on need and we apparently don't need to eat meat, we sure uh, don't need wine, cocoa, sugar, palm oil, and the thousands of other things that have zero nutritional benefit. Very interesting. And, you know, it just goes to show that that, um, you can provide information from the scientific literature to back up just about any view that that you have. That's why, you know, what... uh, we do 
hopefully, and real science, is to take all of the information and put it all together. Uh, yes, there are some good points to be made here about uh, you know growing uh, sugar cane and, and cocoa for, for chocolate, but that land is not going to be converted for other use. Uh, these things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, cutting uh, cutting back on on meat uh, is, or you know, to to cut back on meat, you cannot use the argument that that uh, you know we're also growing chocolate and and sugar. Uh, this is you know these things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, I mean, we can't keep growing our cocoa and our sugar and still cut back on on meat. Anyway, it's a controversial issue, obviously. I have a question for uh, for you guys, as I always do. And uh, what is the blue color in blue cheese due to? What is the blue color in blue cheese due to? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text me at 514-800. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Yesterday uh, in the Montreal Gazette, I wrote a column on smoking. And uh, I talked about various aspects of it. I I described how way back in the uh, 1700s, it was believed that blowing smoke up someone's rear end could resuscitate them after they had drowned. And also talked about how smoking at one time was looked on as as, uh, potentially beneficial to health. And uh, then I started to take a look at the more recent history and talked about Sir Richard Dahl and his um, uh, scientific studies in the 1950s that introduced the idea that smoking was in fact dangerous and linked to lung cancer. And I talked at some length about how he had carried out his studies. But I got a note from Dr. James Hanley, who's a uh, colleague at at McGill. And um, it turns out that actually there were previous studies to the 1950s that talked about the link between tobacco and lung cancer. So while Dahl uh, certainly documented it, there were others before who had introduced this idea. And um, uh, Dr. Hanley sent me a translation of an article from a a German uh, scientific publication in 1939 uh, by uh, F.H. Müller. And uh, he talks about the abuse of tobacco and carcinoma of the lungs. He states that considerable increase of primary carcinoma of the lungs has been observed in recent decades. To explain this increase, various causes have been pointed out, such as increased street dust, exhaust gases of motor cars, tarring of the streets, war gases, x-rays, influenza, tuberculosis, increasing industrialization. There appears to be agreement only on the exogenic character of the causes. And then he goes on to say, increased attention has to be called on smoking as a cause of carcinoma, and that the simultaneous increase of carcinoma of the lungs and consumption of tobacco supports that view. The tar content of tobacco is due mainly to the lignified parts of leaves, such as the veins, and these have been used lately to um, in increased quantities in the manufacture of tobacco, and these have a carcinogenic effect, as has been shown in animal studies. And he goes on and talks about these studies, and then um, 
more interestingly, uh, he went to a hospital and uh, observed 96 people, patients, with lung cancer. And 86 were male and showed results uh, of smoking habits connected uh, to their lung cancer. And uh, many of them were heavy smokers. Uh, some were light smokers, but very few had abstained from smoking. So although, of course, it was not a large enough sample size in order to really come to a conclusion, uh, this was in 1939. So it was before the 1950s when uh, Dole carried out his major study. Okay, as I... Uh, told you a couple of weeks ago, I like to sometimes bring in uh, students who are interested in science and want to take a shot at doing a story on the radio. And we had Morgan Sweeney in at that time and uh, had a lot of positive feedback on Morgan's comments. So we are going to do a reprise. Hey, guys. I'm really excited to be back here talking to you all again. Um, yeah, here it goes. Hi, my name is Morgan. And today, I'm here to tell you a story about a technology lost to time. A long, long time ago, before there were cities, before there were countries, before kings and queens or even farms, there was fire. Civilizations of old carried fire with them to light the way, creating natural oil lamps out of shells or hollow rocks filled with animal fat. Stylized oil lamps became more commonplace around 4,500 B.C., and candles were invented 1,500 years later. While the light produced was sufficient to read at night, it was too soft and localized to illuminate any significant space. In addition, wax and oil were high maintenance, necessitating regular trimming of the wick, and their portable vehicles constantly threatened spillage. Society was looking for more and one of the most popular resources of the late 1700s was to provide the answer. In 1792, William Murdoch, a Scottish inventor, flowed coal gas through pipe installations in his own home, encasing the output and setting it alight. Gaslighting is produced by the combustion of a gaseous fuel, in this case coal gas, and oxygen, typically found in the air. A combustion reaction produces energy in the forms of light and heat, this energy is produced as electrons move from one atom to another. Since oxygen likes electrons, and the gases usually have more than enough, the electrons move from the gas atoms to the oxygen atoms in a process known as an oxidation reaction. This is what produced the glowing light. Coal gas in particular is made by burning coal inside a closed container, which separates its constituent parts into hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and methane, as well as some solid byproducts. Other common gaseous fuels include propane, butane, and ethylene. Sound familiar? These are still used for camping stoves, where a light, compact, and reliable fuel is necessary. Since the gas could flow through pipes and move in larger volumes, it was far less work than oil or candles. Murdoch was eventually able to reproduce his feet outside his building, to widespread amazement. People were so enthralled by the new bright light that a whole industry sprung up around it. In the early 1800s, Paris and London were two of the first cities to install gas lamps along their streets. The added light increased accessibility and demand for nighttime activities, changing the nighttime culture from one of shutting oneself in to going out and socializing with others. 
However much of an improvement gaslights were to candles, they weren't necessarily low maintenance. The lamps had to be manually ignited every night and put out every morning. Even worse, gas combustion has harmful side effects, as carbon monoxide, a lethal gas, was a byproduct of the combustion reaction. Cleaner, safer, brighter, and requiring much less human labor, almost all street lamps were replaced with electric light bulbs around the turn of the 20th century. These days, gaslighting is just used to evoke the mysterious Victorian world it once inhabited, and the dark play turned film turned psychological phenomenon that was named after it. The Washington Post defines gaslighting as, quote, a form of psychological manipulation in which victims are led to doubt the evidence of their senses and the soundness of their reason. A great example of this is the way Donald Trump gaslights the American public every time he claims he had a, quote, perfect phone call with the Ukrainian president, or every time he calls the media fake news, bringing you true news live on The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Angela. Angela? Yes, yes, doctor. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I want to know, doctor, what's, what, kind, uh, what kind of peanuts, you know, like, uh, you know, that we get from Australia? Peanuts? I don't think we get peanuts from Australia. We might get macadamia nuts from Australia. Okay, that's what I mean, macadamia. Okay, uh, that's all we get? As far as I know, yeah. Why? What? Why? Oh, I'm looking for some nuts, and I can't remember what 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 it was called. Well, macadamia nuts come from Australia. That's... They they're also produced in Hawaii and elsewhere, but they originate from Australia. Oh, and they're they're grown in Hawaii. They are also grown in Hawaii. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, I w- it's because uh, I want to know about cashew nuts. What about them? Yeah, they're actually where not they nuts. Come from? They're not actually nuts. They're the seeds of the cashew apple. Oh, they're from yeah. an apple. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, right. I have another question. Is that all right? Quickly. Uh, what's the best solution when you're constipated? A laxative. But if you have constant well, constipation, it's time to see a doctor. <laughs> I have to see a doctor? Yes. If you're constantly constipated, you see a doctor. Oh, okay. If it's Thank rarely you, that you can take a, a laxative like Metamucil, works very well. Polyethylene glycol also works very well. Okay, thanks very much. All right, now I asked a question about uh, what gives the color to blue cheese. And uh, let's go to Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. So, what's uh, yeah. the answer? Well, uh... I thought that blue cheese gets its color uh, due to the uh, putrefaction of the ingredients as the cheese rots underground. No, that's not the case. Okay, let me let me try the next one. Let's go to Kathleen. Kathleen. Hi. Hi. How are you? Okay. The penicillin mold. Very good. It's the penicillin mold. You got that one right. Okay, so sit back and listen to the story of that mold and the blue cheese. Roquefort cheese, which owes both its flavor and color to the blue-green penicillium roqueforti mold. This mold produces a variety of enzymes that break down fats and proteins in the cheese, and that is what yields the flavorful compounds. 
According to legend, it was a shepherdess who some 1,500 years ago made the key discovery that led to Roquefort cheese. She supposedly forgot her lunch of bread and cheese curds in a cave to which she did not return until several weeks later. Much to her surprise, the cheese was covered with a blue fuzz. Having no background in microbiology, she tasted it, and it was yummy. Word got around, and soon the locals stuck to storing soft cheese curds in the cave until they turned blue and tasty. By the time Charlemagne became emperor, the blue cheese was being regularly produced in the caverns of Roquefort. As the story goes, the emperor, on one of his journeys, stopped in a bishop's residence in the area. Because it was Friday, he was unwilling to eat meat, and the bishop served the local moldy cheese. Charlemagne cut off the mold and ate the inside. Why do you do that, Lord Emperor? You're throwing away the best part. He then tried the moldy part and liked it, so much that he asked the bishop to send two cartloads of such cheese to him every year. Today, Roquefort cheese is made by spraying a suspension of penicillin Roqueforti over the curds before aging. This mold needs oxygen to live, so the cheese has to be porous. The cheese is usually pierced with stainless steel needles to allow more oxygen to enter. At one time, copper needles were used for this process, undoubtedly giving birth to the misconception that the blue coloring was caused by the addition of copper to the cheese. Granted, the idea of eating moldy food does not sound appetizing. But there are molds, and then there are molds. Some are dangerous, some are safe. Rubratoxin B is certainly of the dangerous variety. Just as the teenager in Alberta, who needed an emergency liver transplant after he drank homemade rhubarb wine that had become contaminated with this mold. Another nasty mold grows on sugarcane. It produces three nitropropionic acids which can cause seizures and coma. After the Second World War in Russia, thousands died from eating cereal that had become contaminated by trichothecenes from the Fusaria mold. And aflatoxins, produced by a mold that can grow on peanuts or corn, are among the most potent cancer-causing compounds known. Even biblical Job may have had a problem with mold when he complained that, quote, My bowels boiled and rested not and that thou scarest me with dreams and terrifies me through visions. Job may have been describing mycotoxin intoxication from moldy vegetables. Luckily, penicillin Roqueforti does not produce toxins. It does, however, produce some very flavorful compounds, as do other mold-ripened cheeses like camembert, which relies on penicillium camemberti for its flavor. If you must worry about something in moldy cheese, well... Worry about the fat content. As I've told you during the last couple of weeks, in October, we hold our annual Trottier Public Science Symposium, which is one of McGill's premier events. This year, it is October 22nd and 23rd, 7 o'clock at night, at the Centre Montreal, which is on the corner of Sherbrooke and uh, Mansfield Streets. Every year, we choose a topic that we think is of public interest. And this year, we have chosen longevity. We have entitled the symposium, Longing for Longevity. And we all like to do that, right? We all want to age gracefully. We don't want to get old. We know that it's going to happen, but we want to maintain our faculties and our body in the best possible shape. How do we do this? 
So we have invited three very noteworthy speakers. Dr. David Sinclair from Harvard is probably the world's leading expert on, on aging. He has uh, interesting history. It all started with his discovery of resveratrol in red wine, but has progressed far beyond that. Then we will have Kelly Dobos, who's an expert in cosmetics, and we'll see what we can do to the cover of our body uh, with uh, some novelty cosmetics. And the next night, on October 23rd, we have invited Dr. Ruth Westheimer. And she, of course, is now famous virtually all over the world because she was really the first person to discuss sex on radio in a very open fashion. And uh, she has been doing that for some uh, 40 years. So it's October 22nd and 23rd. And on the 23rd, Dr. Ruth Westheimer is going to discuss, is there sex after 50? And uh, there's no tickets required. It is all free. You just show up, but show up early because we'll have a good crowd. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know why Harry Houdini once sent a photograph of himself shown together with President Lincoln to Robert Todd Lincoln, who was the president's son? Well, the answer to that is that Harry wanted to prove that spiritualist mediums were producing fake photographs to con people. The Civil War had brought spiritualism to the forefront with distraught relatives of soldiers who fell in battle hoping to communicate with their spirits. Mediums capitalized on such folly by duping the gullible with photographs that were obviously taken after soldiers' death, but nevertheless clearly seemed to show the image of the dead soldier as a spirit. When a medium claimed to have spirit photographs of President Lincoln, Houdini sent a photo of himself together with Lincoln to the president's son to prove that such pictures were fakes. They were produced through double exposure techniques. Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, and Houdini was born in 1874, so obviously they could never have appeared together in an authentic photo. The famous magician was greatly perturbed by mediums who used tricks to defraud people and was a staunch foe of spiritualists. Being a great admirer of President Lincoln, he was especially angered by mediums who claimed to have contacted the dead president and attacked them with vigor. And he was worried that the president's son might buy into this business of uh, a medium contacting his father through the spirit world. And Houdini wanted to make sure that uh, Mr. Robert Todd Lincoln knew that this was basically fakery. <clears throat> I want to tell you about a very interesting performer. He was dressed magnificently in a waistcoat, red breeches, white stockings, and black patent leather shoes as he proudly strode to the center of the Moulin Rouge stage in Paris. The capacity crowd was thrilled to finally see the most famous French entertainment of the gay 90s. Not even the renowned Sarah Bernhardt had a great public appeal, as did Joseph Pujol. Pujol was a musician of sorts, but he played no instrument. Rather, he himself was a musical instrument, a wind instrument. This illustrious entertainer had the ability to suck air into his body by relaxing his abdominal muscles and then to expel the air at will by controlling his rectal sphincter. 
The unique elasticity of this particular part of Pujol's anatomy allowed him to produce sounds ranging from a clap of thunder to the ripping of cloth. It was said that he elevated passing wind to an art form. Spectators howled in glee when Le Pitoman, as Pujol became known, proceeded to do a series of imitations of wind-passing techniques. His interpretations of the sonic booms produced by bricklayers, the apologetic tones of nuns, and the barely audible little staccatic bursts released by brides on their wedding night usually brought down the house. The act ended with Le Petitman blowing out a candle in his unique fashion. Joseph Pujol was indeed a scientific curiosity. He discovered his talent one day at the beach when, as a young boy, he held his breath and put his head underneath the water. Almost instantly, he was shocked by a cold, penetrating sensation in his abdomen. Young Joseph rushed out of the water and was astonished to see water rushing out of him. His curiosity aroused, Pujol soon learned that his body could be made to behave like a gigantic pipette, sucking in and releasing water at will. Then came the formidable discovery that he could also inhale and expel air in this extraordinary fashion. And so was born perhaps the most amazing novelty act of all time. Pujol sold the act to the manager of the Moulin Rouge in his inimitable way. Having brought a basin filled with water into the gentleman's office, he proceeded to empty and then refill the container by sitting on it. The bewildered manager was also treated to a series of sound effects and a rendition of Au Clair de la Lune, played on a flute in a decidedly original fashion. It was breathtaking or perhaps more appropriately, not breathtaking. Pujol got the job, and the rest, as they say, is history. Le Petoman became the toast of Paris. He inspired many imitators who could never match the great man's talent and were quickly blown away. One lady, however, Angèle Thibault, enjoyed a fair degree of success as a female Petoman. She promised no trickery or odor, and even offered a money-back guarantee. Customers only had to pay if they liked the show. Apparently, though, Madame Thibaudot did resort to some chicanery because she stopped performing when Pujol sued her, claiming that she used mechanical devices to produce sounds which to him came naturally. Can we learn anything from Pujol's unique gift? He himself recognized the singular nature of his talent and agreed to accept the medical school's offer of 25,000 francs to examine his body after death. However, when the peerless performer passed on in 1892, at the age of 88, his children were not keen to push back the frontiers of science and did not allow a post-mortem. But it is interesting to note that every morning the great Petoman cleansed out his insides in a singular fashion and was never sick a day in his life. Perhaps all of that washing there had some bit of the right chemistry. This is not to suggest that we should be following his example, as uh, some health practitioners today advise people to do with various kinds of flushes up the rear end, colon cleanses, as they call them. Those are actually quite dangerous, potentially. There have been cases of perforated colons, and your uh, colon is not a pipe that needs to be periodically washed out. Uh, the only thing that should enter there is the gastroenterologist's uh, colonoscope. All right, you've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We will, of course, be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.